be his brother if he's got money. <laughs> Hi, my name's Chuck O'Neill, and I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. I got some stuff to take care of, some house cleaning chores. I'm not going to talk about the pen because I just used the pen to write down what time it is. It's uh, 7.17 because I don't remember what time I start. So I want to write this down so I know by 9 or 10 o'clock tonight that I should be getting close. <laughs> well, I don't know why you're laughing. I got this letter. I got a contract in the mail. Is uh, Ashley sitting here tonight? No. She's got a cool name, by the way. It's almost like a new, uh, uh, TV reporter's name. I'm not going to say her last name because she's not here. But uh, it says we can, you can talk for 500 minutes. Well, <laughs> I figure that's uh, eight hours and 20 minutes. So I can talk four hours, 20-minute break, talk four hours. We still get bar a barber in here in the morning, so we got time. Okay, 717. I want to thank the committee for asking me here today. See, i got to write this stuff down or otherwise I'm going to forget it. The only problem is I do it kind of goofy, and then I wonder why I wrote down certain words. I can't figure it out. It's got, oh, I know why that's there. Um, I want to thank the committee for, what the heck? If you see me disappear, you know why. And I move around a lot, so this thing might be falling on the floor before the night's over. Um, I thank the committee for inviting me here today, and, and I want to thank Jim for picking me up at the airport. Jim brought me to a, a, a place that served uh, Indian-style food, you know, from India, and, and uh, I had never had that type of food before, and I don't even know what I ate, but I had two helpings of everything, so <laughs> it was good, and it was, uh, it was a warm room last night, I'll tell you. Whoa, that's some, that's some hot stuff, but I, I, I do like, I like hot food, so it really wasn't a problem. I like spicy food. I like hot Mexican food. I want to thank Dave and Diane for hauling me around and being with me this weekend, and, and we, we have had a good time, and, and we have related. Uh, their, their time in sobriety and their time in Al-Anon is almost equals um, uh, Sandy and my own. My wife's name is Sandy. Uh, we came into the program. We've been in for 23 years, and, and I think you guys said 21 or something like that. And, and our, our family situation is kind of similar, too, and so we had a, we had a good time to sit and talk and, and uh, just get to know one another. Got a fruit basket in the room, and it's it must be like Kansas. I was I've never been to Kansas before. Uh, I've seen it on TV with Dorothy and those people, but um, I always thought it was kind of this fruit basket is flat. You know, it's just a flat basket, and uh, of course I'll be able to get it on the airplane, so that that's cool too. Um, I got to tell you about what was in that basket. There was a lot of stuff in there. Now, I'm here by myself. My uh, wife, Sandy, is in Eau Claire, Wisconsin right now with one of her pigeons, and she's probably, as we speak, at an AA meeting right now. Uh, and then she had a, a concert that she sings, and she sings with the school district singers. So I'm here by myself. Now, in this fruit basket, among other things, are uh, lemon-flavored soap for sensuous bathing. Um, <laughs> there's a lemon candle in there for sensuous lighting. There's a tea in there that is sinfully cinnamon. And then there's some tea in there that is sweet dreams. Well, you see, I don't like to be sinful by myself anymore, so <laughs> it's just not that much fun, you know. So anyway, I, uh, I, I had the uh, other tea, whatever it was, uh, mint tea or something. I felt safe drinking that. Happy Father's Day to all you fathers out here. It's going to be Father's Day tomorrow, so I want to take that opportunity to say it tonight. 
Um, that's two fathers or father figures, and I don't include sugar daddies in that, so you're on your own there. Um, let's see what else I got. I got that taken care of. Boy, I'm really ripping through here tonight. We've had really wonderful speakers, and uh, I'm not going to go uh, and talk about what they talked about, but I heard some good stuff. And I heard things that are very, um, very common sense that I've not heard before. And I've been to a lot of these conferences, and I've been in Al-Anon for quite a while, and, and uh, it's, it's wonderful to come to places and hear new stuff and hear common sense stuff that's new. So I, I appreciate uh, listening to the speakers and what they have to say. And I especially appreciate being able to listen to your report. That was very, very informative. Um, thanks to the grace of God and the Elanon Fellowship, I haven't had to be angry or upset or profane since 7.30 this morning when I stubbed my toe on that damn door stopper thing there. <laughs> the alcoholics, alcoholics got it easy. <laughs> right, I haven't drank since Harry Truman was elected. <laughs> Us poor Al-Anon people, we don't have that luxury. <laughs> I, um, I love your, the theme of your conference, let it begin with me. I had an opportunity, I've not said this before, so I don't know how this is going to come out. This just happened to me on Monday night, or Tuesday night. Um, I belong to a church, and I'm, I'm on the board of trustees, and we had a meeting Tuesday night. And one of the guys that gave me a ride home from the meeting uh, uh, was a member of the, of the uh, Al or Alcoholics Anonymous Fellowship. And he uh, got away from AA and got into the church. And now he's on the board of uh, trustees and he's very active in church. And, and his church is his recovery. And I'm not saying that's good, bad, or indifferent. That's just the path he chose. But he knows that Sandy and I are in our recovery programs because we, Sandy and him went to meetings together, he and his wife. And, and uh, they were very much involved in service work. Sandy was very involved in service work with, with uh, uh, this gentleman. And on our way home, uh, he when I'm in the when I'm alone with him, he likes to talk about the way Alcoholics Anonymous uh, was in his mind, and he likes to ask me, you know, are, where are you going? And I, I told him I was coming to Kansas City this weekend, and he said, oh, you're going to be talking, and I said, yeah, and so he said, Chuck, how does the Lord work in Alcoholics Anonymous now and on? And it was a question that I hadn't expected him to ask. And my reply was, I don't know a lot about Alcoholics Anonymous other than what I hear from Sandy or just hear from being around. But I said in Al-Anon, I think where the, the way God works in Al-Anon is that a lot of people come into Al-Anon Fellowship and they're either afraid of God, they're angry with God, they refuse to admit there is a God, and, and they don't want anything to do with God. If, if, if God was so great, why did he allow this to happen to me? That kind of thing. And I said the way, in my, in my situation anyway, in my thoughts, in my head, I think the way God works in Al-Anon is that he allows, he works through us, and we, we bring God back into a person's life in a gentle manner by allowing them to come to Al-Anon we don't stuff things down their throat. If they want to choose God as their higher power, that's their prerogative. And to me, that's the way God works in this fellowship. I can believe in God, or I can, I can choose not to, and I'm not going to be condemned for that. Uh, I've never had my heart bruised in an Al-Anon meeting. I have been in other situations in other spiritual situations where I've had my heart bruised by believing in what I believe in. You people allow me to believe what I believe, and you don't take me any other place, and I really appreciate that. I was born in, I was born in Ironwood, Michigan, moved to Superior during the war. I'm 60 years old. My mom and dad moved to Superior, Wisconsin during the war. 
Uh, my wife, Sandy, was born and raised in Superior, Wisconsin. We grew up about six blocks apart from one another, didn't know each other until nine months before we were married. Um, Superior is a blue-collar town. It's a union town. I'm a retired Teamster, 30 years in the Teamsters. I work for the Superior School System now as well as my wife does. Uh, we're both in special education right now. Um, Superior is a town of 25,000 people and 89 bars. <laughs> You can't go too far without falling into a bar. I said, if you can throw a softball, you can hit a bar. And, uh, and a lot of them were family bars. When I grew up, my, both my parents drank. And when I grew up in the 40s and the 50s, uh, we used to go to family bar. And we'd, we'd sit and have great pop and chocolate bars, and my dad would sit at the bar and talk railroad and drink beer, and my mom would sit in the booth and drink beer with her lady friends. In the spirit of Wisconsin back then, up until the end of the 60s, mid-60s, it was illegal for women to sit at the bar. So if you women libbers want something to <laughs> think about, <laughs> you've come a long way, baby. Um, <laughs> but we, I never considered alcohol a problem. The arguments that my parents had usually happened when there was drinking, but I didn't see it as alcoholism. Were the alcoholic? I have no idea, and it doesn't matter anymore. I'm a big boy. i got to take care of myself. Um, on Sandy's side of the family, on her paternal side of the family, the, uh, alcoholism has run rampant. There's been several deaths from alcoholism on her, on her father's side of the family. Her own, father was a, her own father was an alcoholic who had to plug in the jug for 40 years. And I'm not breaking anonymity when I say that. He used to talk about that. He found his recovery in another situation. He used to do work in the missions uh, uh, in Superior. And we had a number of missions down in the Bowery, down in the north end of town. Um, I grew up on 3rd Street which was the wrong side of the tracks. Sandy grew up on 6th Street, still the wrong side of the tracks. There was uh, houses of ill repute on either side of our house. There was bars. There was uh, bordellos. There was, it was just the way it was. And I grew, Sandy and I grew, both grew up in a rough part of town. And when we started drinking, we started drinking in that neck of the woods because that's where we were familiar. Um, Sandy and I, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with myself here. Um, I got out of service in 1964, and, and in, in Wisconsin, I don't know what it's like in Kansas, but in Wisconsin at that time, it was illegal. Uh, you could not drink in a bar unless you were 21 in the city limits, but you could go out in the county and drink uh, at a county bar if you were 18, and that, that bar only served beer. Those were beer bars. Those were, that was the county, and we used to drive. It was nothing for us to put 150 miles on a night driving out to the county to, to drink. And consequently, there's a lot of kids that aren't around that died on their way home from the county. That was, it was a given that you knew people that would, they were going to die coming home from the county. Almost every year there was one or two or three or more. Sandy's uh, uh, fiancé at the time, uh, shortly before she met me, a year or so before she met me, uh, they were going to go out in the county, they got into an argument, and she wouldn't go. So he went with two other people, and they, all three of them died coming back from the county. I grew up in the era of the Super Bs, 426 Hemis, those kinds of things. We had fast cars, cheap gas, and, and cheap beer, and, and that was the result of that. One particular night, my friend and I, and my friend Dale, uh, asked if I wanted to go out in the county and have a beer at Clara's. Clara's was the family, or was the watering hole that we used to frequent. I said, sure, nothing else to do on a Wednesday night, so we went out to the bar. Got out there, and we were having a couple of beers, and all of a sudden, uh, uh, Dale's girlfriend, Nancy, comes walking in. Now, Dale's girlfriend, Nancy, had this beautiful, beautiful woman with her. And, and I looked and I thought, oh, crap, they're going to come and sit with us. Oh, I, didn't, I, I wanted that woman to sit with us, but I didn't want that woman to sit with us. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because I was a dork. I was, I'd 
glasses and I was tall and skinny and I had, had well, I had long hair then, extremely long hair then, and uh, uh, I just didn't feel good about myself. So here they come strolling over. And it was Sandy, by the way. And she, she had this black sweater on. It was 37 years ago, and I remember the sweater was filled out to its maximum potential. And, <laughs> and she had this hairdo that came up the top of her head like Marge Simpson. And it was, it was, that was what they did back then. And it was, looked like a root beer float because it was frosted, you know, and it had brown and light colored stuff in it. And about three cans of Aquanet. And, oh man. She sat down next to me, and I always say, Aquanet still can turn me on, you know. <laughs> Because back then, that's all there was. Yeah, there was none of this gel crap back then. Um, Nancy sits next to Dale. Well, where's Sandy going to sit? Right by my left leg. Woo! And you ever rub your feet on a rug, and then you walk up, you touch somebody, and, boom, and that spark comes out? Man, there were sparks flying up and down my left leg. And it was just, and I was getting warm and hot in this area, and I was getting warm and hot in other areas, and I was just... <laughs> We were already engaged, married, and had three kids before I even was introduced to her, you know, and, and uh, holy smokes, and, and she, we were introduced, and, and then she said, uh, Chuck, what do you do for a living? And at that time, I, I worked in an auto parts store, and that's what I told her, and she went, oh, and I thought she went, ugh, because who would want, you know, and I thought, oh, crap, there, I blew this one, told her where I worked, I, you're not, you know, so I'm sitting there thinking, oh, God, I would love to go out with this woman. She is so beautiful, and she she just, I mean, she had mascara that just stuck out like an inch and a half, you know. She looked like giraffe eyelashes, and, and, oh, her face is so pretty, and that hair, and that smell of that Aquanet, and and, and then, and I knew she wouldn't go out with me, but she did something, and she denies this, but she took her toe, and she touched my ankle with her toe. Woo! I had I had those night dreams for three weeks after that, you know. And I told her one time, I said, if you would have kept doing that, we wouldn't have had to get married because that was good for me, you know. <laughs> what did I know? Well, we did start going out together. We 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 became the, from the first time we met. Uh, a couple weeks later, we doubled, and we we doubled a couple more times with Dale and Nancy. And there, there, um, Nancy, uh, who introduced us works right next door in the next room in the school I'm in. She's a school nurse, and we work in a special ed room. And, and so every once in a while, she'll go, I introduced you to And I said, oh, yes, I know, I know. Forget it, will you? What do you want, a medal? Should hit you in the head with something. Anyway, uh, where were we? Oh, yeah, she was touching my leg, and I was getting horny. Okay, uh, uh, we, we, we started going out, and, and we just fit together like a hand in a glove. We were two sick people looking for one another. And, and, and after that, it was just like total exclusion of our friends. We both had friends, but we just became inseparable. We said we weren't going to be serious. And that lasted, uh, I think, about a week, five days, and four hours. And after that, it was way beyond serious. It was just like we, we were just going to do it. We got married nine months later. It was uh, January 21st, 1967. It was 38 below zero that night in Superior, Wisconsin. And we had to make our own heat, which we did, thank you very much. And, uh, and then we started having kids. And, and we, we had a good time, so we drank a lot. Everything we did had to do with drinking. I mean, we went to the movie, we took a bottle of wine. We, we went out to eat. Sometimes we didn't get to go eat because we stayed in the bar too long, and then there was no sense to go eat. Um, she was 19 years old, I was 22. And, and we were just kids. And I, I had 
left the house, uh, my folks' house at 17 to join the military. I got out of the military, moved back home. I met Sandy, and I lived home until we got married. The night we got married, I moved out of home. So we had never been apart. We had never been alone, uh, either one of us. And in her in her house, alcoholism was, although dry, was rampant. It was unrecovered alcoholism. And in my house, it was, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. My mom's to this day, my ma is still like that. She'll call me up on the phone and go, uh, I'm going to bring the paper out, Chuck. I have to have the Sunday paper. She has to bring me the Sunday paper every Sunday. I can't buy it myself. She brings it to me. Okay, ma, uh, we're probably going to go someplace. Don't go yet. I'm bringing you the paper. Okay, ma, I love you. I love you too, ma. Goodbye. Or if she forgets to tell me I love you, she calls me back. She says, oh, I forgot to say I love you. Oh, okay, ma, I love you too. Goodbye. And that's the way my house was. Pass the potatoes. I love you. And it's just... So here we are, Sandy and Chuck, together, you know, and it's just like, wow, we didn't even know what love was. We didn't know what relationships were. We certainly didn't know what healthy relationships were, and we're just starting this life. And Sandy got pregnant and had my oldest son. I've got three kids. Chuck is 35, and Chris is 34, and, and uh, Kurt is 31. They're great kids. They were great kids. They are great adults, and I love them dearly, although uh, I'll talk about my youngest one, who's extra special. He's, he's a good part of our recovery, and I'll bring him up later on. Um, so we started having kids, and, and I don't know about you Al-Anon people here, but see, my wife, and, and if I talk about Sandy's alcoholism, or if I talk about drinking or any alcoholics, I'm not talking about them because they're alcoholics. I don't give a damn about alcoholics. What I want to tell you about is my insanity, the insane behavior I had as a sober, most of the time, sober person, my insanity by being affected by somebody else's alcoholism. Alcoholics are nuts. Sure they're nuts. Everybody knows that. But the non-alcoholics get nuts too. And that's what I want to talk about is my own insanity. And I'll let you figure out who's insane, me or the alcoholic. And for me, it's pretty obvious who was crazy. Anyway, uh, Sandy had this friend of hers. And she, her name was Squeegee. Well, it's still Squeegee, but her nickname was Squeegee. And she had this thumb that was... She smashed it in the door and it was about this big. And she could use it for a spoon to eat with, you know. And, and Squeegee, uh, the first time I met her, she was throwing a beer can at a guy. And this is Sandy's best friend. Well, she's the one that forced Sandy to drink. Y'all's got those people because the alcoholic wouldn't drink on her own. You know that. I mean, Sandy would have preferred to stay home with me rather than go out drinking. But, but her friend dragged her out the door. And, and got her started. And, and one night I'm sitting home with these two babies. Chris and, uh, Chris and Chuck were uh, 13 months apart. And so I'm sitting home with these two babies, and Sandy's off drinking. By this time, she's turned 21. She's off drinking, and uh, I'm sitting home alone, and I'm thinking, I'm going to go get her. I'm going to kick her butt. And, and I'll, I'll drag her out of that place. I know where she is. I'm going to drag her out by her hair, and I'm going to give her something that she'll never forget. She won't do this again. And I'm thinking, well, I got the kids home. Well, I left the kids home. I jump in the car, and it's in the wintertime, and I told you it was 38 below when we got married, so in the wintertime in Superior, it gets cold, and I jump in the car, and I drive down to where this lady lived, and sure enough, there's lights on, there's a couple cars parked out in front, and I recognized a few of them, and, and the party's going on inside, and I'm, oh, I'm so mad, I, I just, I hate her guts, and I hate myself for being involved with it. Why didn't I do what, what did? How did I do this? I deserve a lot better than this kind of behavior. This is crap. I'm going in there and I'm going to kick her rear end. And I sat there for a little while longer and I thought, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to go in there. You're not going in there. 
Start the car up, go home. Now, who's nuts? I left my two little babies home alone in their cribs. They were both in cribs at the time. Left those two little babies home in cribs. Neither one of them get out of the cribs. And it's three, four o'clock in the morning, whatever it was, and I'm driving around town. What would happen if the house caught on fire? What would have happened if those babies started crying? Who was going to be there for them? Nobody. Now, who's crazy? The alcoholic was sitting in there having fun, drinking a couple beers? Or this non-alcoholic sober goof that leaves his kids home alone? And that's the way it was with us. We used to... We used to go out dancing, and, and we'd go out together, and sometimes we'd have fun. But there came a point at uh, practically every time we went out after a while that things stopped being fun and turned bad. And one, one night, we were at this, this uh, wedding dance, and it was a room about this size. It was up on the second floor of the VFW in Superior. And we're up there dancing. Now, you alcoholics aren't going to understand this. You, you Al-Anon people are going to understand this perfectly. You're going to recognize this thing. The alcoholics don't because by the time it happens, you're too damn drunk to know what happens, so you don't know. And I'm, this is information for you. <laughs> we, we drink out of these ugly things here, these flimsy glasses that scare the heck out of me because I'm a, I'm a spastic klutz and I'll spill that stuff, you know. Anyway, some nights it's a two-beer night. Some nights it's a two-twelve-pack night. Tonight was a two-beer night. So we're up there dancing, and after two beers... Sandy looks at me, and her eyelids went just like broken window shades. They just went about halfway down, and then they do. Then this is what you guys do: you go like this, and you start looking under the bottoms of those eyelids, and you just know, you just know it's tear the guy's face off time. It's dance on the table time. It's time is awfully hot in here. I simply must take off some clothes time. It's time for me to get her out of here. And I didn't have Alan on, but I knew that was the crazy time, and it was going to happen. Sandy was a militant drunk. She has taken guys, one guy had an afro, and she grabbed his head, and she drove it right into her knee. And then she says, come on, Chuck, let's go get him. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm too diplomatic for that kind of activity. But, uh, you know, that's the way it was. So I, I, told, I told our friend, grab Sandy's purse, we're getting out of here. Now, I'm as big as I am. Sandy's little tiny thing fits right about here. When we would dance, she would lead, because I, do, I don't even know what lead means. <laughs> I see people dance, but I don't know dance. You know, it's like there's a block there. I'm challenged when it comes to footwork. And, and uh, she would get up to me, and she'd stick that aquanet mm, right in my head. <laughs> and she'd say, let's dance, hon. And she, when Sandy... When Sandy calls me my love, I just melt. I totally melt. She could get away with anything. And she goes, my love, what do you want to do? Ah, oh, it's up to you, dear. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, she's, she gets her head in there, and she would push me around the dance floor like a, a tug pushing a barge up the Mississippi River. And we never bumped into anybody. She couldn't see anything because her eyeballs were stuck right in there smelling my armpit. And... So this night I says, come on, Sandy, we're going to dance. And I danced Sandy across that dance floor, and I danced her down those stairs, and I danced her into the parking lot, and I danced her to the car, and I put her in the car and brought her home. And then when we got home, I did something I always do. I threw her over my shoulder. I carried her up the few steps to the house, carried her in the house past the babysitter. And the babysitter would go, hi, Chuck, hi, Sandy, you know. And <laughs> I'd bring her up the stairs. That's what I always did is bring her up, carried her up the stairs. And... and uh, I'm certainly glad I don't have to do that anymore. I'm very grateful for her sobriety for more than one reason or two. And uh, then I would put her to bed. Sometimes I'd go back to the party. Sometimes I wouldn't. But that's the way our life was. And we started arguing in the bars, and I just, I just decided to start staying home, and that's what I started doing. 
And I would, I, we had one of those Pyrex coffee pots with the blue corn silk flowers on the sides, and they got the black cover on it. And I'd have that sucker cooking. Boy, it'd be 3 o'clock in the morning, and that thing would be bubbling away, and I'd be pouring myself coffee, and my body would be vibrating because of the coffee I'm drinking. And I'm making plans for her demise. Ooh, I hated her so bad. And the next morning, I loved her. I hated her Friday nights when she bowled. I, I, I fantasized her driving that car into the muddy Nemaji River that's a, a mile from our house. I, I fantasized the funeral. I had, the, I had the, the, the pallbearers written up. I had all that stuff in my head ready to go. And I, I would adjust it once in a while because she was, she was good. She was really involved in a lot of stuff like PTA president. You know, she was PTA president. So I, I had to put that in. Let's see, president PTA 1968 to 19... You know, and, and then the pallbearers. If I saw her messing around with one of those prospective pallbearers, his name come off the list right away. <laughs> he ain't carrying that woman's body. <laughs> and then the next day I loved her. We'd go out to Patterson Park, and we do camp hosting now since we work for the school system. We don't work all summer, so we go out camp hosting. And what that does is we just take care of the campground for all summer. And Patterson Park was one of the places that we, we now do the camp hosting. But back then, we'd go out there and walk around, and I'd hold that woman's hand, and I loved her so much. Man, she smelled good. She was pretty. She was kind. She was affectionate. How, how could you hate her last night? You must be nuts to hate her. She's so good. And she's not going to do this again. You know she's, <laughs> you know she's, she's going to, it'll be better. It'll be better. And it was never better. It just got worse. Um, some night she'd come home and I'd, I'd, I'd be waiting at that door. Because you know that I'm going to give it to her when she comes through that door. And I've got enough caffeine in me, right? And I'm not responsible for myself. <laughs> and I used to sit we had a couch, and I'd sit on the arm of that couch, and I'd look out the window, and we live on two dead-end streets. And boy, t traffic on a dead-end street at 3 o'clock in the morning, it's like rush hour. <laughs> and I'd be watching, and finally I'd see the car pull up. And if it was our car, I was really glad because I knew the car was okay. <laughs> somebody else would bring her home, you know, and she'd get out of the car, start stumbling towards the house, and I'd run upstairs and jump in bed. I'm 240 pounds. She's like 130 or so at that time, you know, and I'm jumping in bed and pretending I'm sleeping. She comes upstairs, does what alcoholics do. You know, she used to wake the kids up all the time. She'd go in the bedroom, kiss them, give them their candy bars and stuff. And God, I hated that because I'm the one that's going to have to be up with them. I'm the one that's going to have to get up in the morning with them. Get to bed. Go to sleep. Of course, I never said that. But uh, then she'd go in the bathroom and she'd sing to the bowl. You know how they do that. And she had long hair at that time, you know, and I'd go in there and she'd be puking her guts out in the can. And I'd, I'd take her hair and I'd put it back over her head, you know, and I'd... I'd be, she'd be in a various state of undress. She usually was. So I'm holding her hair back, and I'm rubbing her back, and she's barfing her guts out, you know. And I, it's okay, Sandy. It's okay. Let it go, hon. You'll be okay. You'll you'll be okay. And in my mind, I'm going, I'd stick your head down that toilet. Oh, no, no, dear. It'll be all right. It'll be fine. Yo, know, who's nuts? Who comes home drunk and stumbles in and pukes? Who's the guy running around the house with a caffeine jag and, and, and just... Hating her head in that toilet, I just wanted to stick it down there. And, and then saying, oh, it's okay, dear, it'll be fine. This death wish I had for her, one night she came home after a particularly long drunk. She was over in Duluth, <coughs> excuse me, over in Duluth drinking with her sisters, which is a whole other story. She'd come home and, and she came upstairs and I was pretending like I was sleeping and I could hear her crying in the bathroom. So I went into the bathroom and I said, hon, what's the matter? Hun." 
15 minutes before that, I was thinking, let's see, Steve will be a pallbearer, and uh, Karen will feel sorry for me and perhaps hug me. And, uh, Han, what's the matter? Chuck, I tried to kill myself. With the, it's a long story, but it had something to do with the car. And she says, um, I tried to kill myself. And I says, are you crazy? What do you mean you tried to kill yourself? Don't you know I, I love you and the kids love you and your mom and dad loves you and all these people love you? You're selfish. You're, you're just a selfish person. You think about yourself. Was there one other selfish person in that room? I'm, I'm planning her death and her funeral. And then I'm calling her nuts for her saying she tried to kill herself. And that's the fantasy I'm having is that she's going to kill herself. Who's crazy, the alcoholic or the non-alcoholic? I got two little kids, and then, then Kurt came four years later. Uh, wintertime in Superior, Wisconsin, it gets dark real fast. Five o'clock at night, it's blackout. You can put the kids to bed. They don't know how to tell time. Put them to bed. <laughs> then you go on worrying about yourself, you know? So I put these kids to bed, and little Chrissy, she's just a little doll. She's a little blonde-haired doll. Usually had a little snot hanging down with her hair coming across, you know? And, and she'd come to the top stairs and say, Dad... I need a drink of water. So I'd go upstairs and I'd give her a drink of water and I'd bring her in the bedroom, you know, and tuck her back in bed and everything. Good night, Chris. And I'd give her a little kiss on her, on her little snotty lips there, you know. And, and I'd go downstairs and, and uh, a little while later, Chrissy, she's very persistent. She'd back up top of the stairs. Uh, Dad, there's a boogeyman in my bedroom. So I said, well, let's go look. And then I'd bring the flashlight and we'd look under the bed and she'd have her little head right next to mine and she's looking too, you know, looking in the closet and doing all that kind of stuff. And no boogeyman, Chris. We'd go in Chuck's bedroom and look, and I'd put her back in bed, and she'd say, uh, Dad, where's Mom? And I'd say, shut up! What does that little kid think is going on? Who is the crazy, mean ogre in that house? Is it the woman that brings home candy bars and pop? Or is it that stark, raven, sober, sharp-toothed, spitting-in-the-face, six-foot-four, 240-pound guy? Scream at her to shut up. What was the crime she had committed? She asked where her mother was and when she was coming home. And I slammed it right into her like that. Who do the, who do the kids think is crazy, the alcoholic or the non-alcoholic? My son cowering in the corner, and me thumping him on the chest, and he's crying. I said, what the hell are you crying about? His dad, I'm afraid of you. What do you got to be afraid of me for? I'm your father. I, my mind was so enveloped in my situation and all the fantasies that go along with that situation because alcoholics... The alcoholic I was married to didn't get drunk every night. She didn't run around every night. She wasn't... I, I had infidelities in my mind. I had drunks in my mind. I, when I, wor I worked midnights at that time, and I used to think about her being gone. You know, what's, what's going to happen when I get home? I worried constantly. I was fretting all the time. She went out and got drunk once in a while. I always worried. Is she going to be home? Is the babysitter going to be there? If the babysitter's there and it's 7.30 in the morning and I come home, I'm really going to be embarrassed. What's she going to think of us? Those are the things that went on in the sober mind. So again, I say, who's crazy? And I loved her and I hated her and I didn't know why. She comes, she comes home one night, gets upstairs. She's stumbling drunk. So I help her. I help her in the bathroom. I help her in the bedroom. I take her clothes off of her. I put her in bed. And then I take sexual advantage of her. She's a passed out body laying in the bed. And I sexually molest my wife. Who's crazy? The alcoholic who's passed out and doesn't have a say in what's going on? Or the stark raven sober maniac is jumping on top of her? You know, and the reason I bring that up is because I'm not alone. Almost every time I tell my story, there's a guy that comes up to me and says, Chuck, I did that too. As a matter of fact, I, the, where I first 
saw that story was in Al-Anon Faces Alcoholism, the first edition. There's a guy that writes a story in there about being married to a, a, an alcoholic. And he said he took sexual advantage of his wife and she was passed out by. And I thought, my God, I did that too. And I'm not alone because I never told anybody. I never told my sponsor that because I figured that I was the only one that had ever done that. And thank goodness for Al-Anon literature that is candid enough to talk about a situation so so serious and so uh, so uh, controversial as that that I can stand up here and tell you that today. Or I can work with a guy, one of the guys I sponsor, and if he brings up a situation similar to that, I said, yeah, Tim, I know what you're talking about because I did that too, and you're not alone. I had a guy in Colorado talk to me 45 minutes about that after I got done talking out there about the things that he used to do when his wife was drunk. Who's crazy? Who's got their own insanity, the alcoholic or the non-alcoholic? I hated her and I loved her and I couldn't figure out why and I thought it was phony. I, I thought about running away. That never worked out. I was too chicken. I couldn't live with her. I couldn't live without her. I accepted promises. One night she called me up. She says, Chuck, if you were half a man, you'd call me at the bar and tell me to come home. There's your answer. Call me at the bar and I'll come home. That's all I needed to hear. I felt so good. And I called her at 10.30 at the bar. I knew who she was. She was over at Canaries. It's a neighborhood bar not too far from the house. And... Uh, she finally gets on the phone and says, well, Sam, it's 10.30. She says, so what? Well, you said that you'd come home at 10.30. It's 10.30. Well, I'm not coming home. Now, here's something. Alcoholics, they, you know, they talk about blackouts. Uh, last night, or today, uh, the gentleman said he was a blackout drinker. I do not remember what happened after that. I don't remember a thing what happened after that. There's several things, in my, places in my life where I got to a stage of anger or frustration, or fear, and I don't remember what happened next. I remember everything up to that point. So as far as I'm concerned, I had emotional blackouts, where my mind was so focused on, on either imagined or, or, or terrorist things that I just couldn't go any further. I was, I was in a state of terror. I was in a state of, of constant fear. Um, things were getting worse, very much worse. We, Sandy and I sat on the couch one night, or one day, we were sitting kind of knee to knee, and she was looking at me, and I said, if you could just come home, just come home, just don't drink so much. And man, was I taking a risk saying that. And she looked at me, and she said, Chuck, I don't know whether I can just come home. I don't know whether I can't just drink so much. And we both started to cry. And we never thought about alcoholism. That didn't enter our minds. We just knew there was something wrong in our lives, and we didn't know what it was, and it was ruining our life together. We went to marriage counseling, and we, we did some other stuff. Nothing seemed to work, and things just kind of got worse. And I always had that love-hate thing going on, and I, that really bothered me a lot because I love Sandy so much. You know, I was not an experienced person when I met this lady, and, and she just was, uh, she was number one in my book. And, and for me to be able to hate her so much when she was out drinking and love her so much when she was home, I just couldn't figure that out. One of Sandy's sisters went into treatment. And uh, part of the treatment philosophy back then was for uh, the family members to go to family week. And if you went to family week, in order to go to family week, you had to go to Elanine. You couldn't, and you, you weren't able to drink. That's what they told you anyway. So Sandy starts going to Elanine with her mother and her dad, and I'm thinking, wow, this is great. Because Tuesday night, I knew where she was, 1609 John Avenue in Superior, Wisconsin. She's at an Elanine meeting. That's wonderful. Maybe they'll teach her how to drink. Teach her the important things about cooking and staying home and doing stuff like that. 
geez. So anyway, I'm sitting home on Tuesday night. I'm, I, I'm feeling serene, and I'm not even going to Al-Anon, you know. I, I read about it in Ann Landers. I knew what it was about. And so anyway, she, the phone rings. And I, I, hello, and it's my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law and I have a relationship that is uh, tolerable, put it that way. We've been, Sandy and I have been married for 36 years. It's going to be 36 years, so... Anyway, uh, it's my mother-in-law. Yes. Do you know where Sandy is? She asked me. And do you ever get that, like when you forget to make a payment or, or you've done something in school and you get caught and you know your butt's going to be pinned to the wall? <clears throat> this, this heat goes right through and comes out the top of your head and that's what happened to me. And I said, Ma, she went to Al-Anon with you. Well, she said she went to Al-Anon with me, but she picked up her one day at a time in her shoes and she walked out the door and she went downstairs and she said, Chuck... I think she went to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't know where this came from in this noodle, but I said, well, maybe that's where she belongs. And that must have been where she belonged, because it was like, I don't remember the exact date. It was like April, um, late March, early April of 1980, and she's always gone to Alcoholics Anonymous. And so that must be where she belongs, you know. Well, here we go. My wife is going to A&A. God, this is the best thing that happened to me since chocolate cake. You know that? Because I know now that my wife's going to go home. She's going to start making uh, the meals. She's going to start turning my shorts inside out when they come out of the dryer. <laughs> mating my socks so I got two white ones instead of a white and a gray. And if this, this stuff is going to be great. We are going to be a, a nuclear family now. This is going to be a good thing. To, yeah, right. I didn't even get the car, let alone supper. She had to have the car to go to the club. The club became the word of the day. And it was to the club. Everything was club, club, club. And she'd pick me up from work and she'd be bald. <laughs> she'd start chucking a little. i say, what's the matter, Sandy? I'm an alcoholic. I just can't. I'd say, well, let's go home. You can put meatloaf on. And we'll, you know, we'll be okay. No, I, I can't go home. i got to finish listening to the tape at the club. So she dragged me to that damn Elano club with the smoke about this far off the floor. And it was just, you'd walk in there and your, your eyeballs would start watering and stuff would run out of your nose and just, oh, jeez. And we'd sit and watch that little black box sitting there, you know, and listen to that tape. It was, it was K from Kankakee or something. I've been sober since the Seven Civil War. And I was, I'm just, I feel so grand, happy, joyous, and free. <laughs> and you'd be coughing. And, and there I'd be sitting. Where's the kids? Oh, they're over to Karen's house. Did you get anything on for supper? Well, no, Chuck. I, I have to go to meetings. My sponsor said go to 90, minute, 90 meetings, 90 minutes, and I'm, I'm trying to work this program. Don't you appreciate me being sober? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I was saying I'm sorry, and inside I'm saying, Alcoholics Anonymous can, you know what they can do. And then besides that, she's going to all these meetings. I was, I was with my best friend. He lives across the alley from us. I was with my best friend when he got 12 steps. And it was at, well, I won't say it. It was at his work. I went with him, and, and I hugged him when he went away to treatment. He went away out of town to treatment. When he came back, he had this big blue book, and he was talking about higher powers and gods and things like that. And his, his wife, who was our best friend, she's got this little tiny book, uh, Days at a Time or something like that, this little blue book, and she's going to this Elanon stuff, and she's talking all this stuff. I didn't want nothing to do with those people. They were religious. <laughs> Get away from me. 
Well, then what happens now? Steve's my best friend. Sandy starts going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings with Steve. Now, let me tell you this. His name came right off of that pallbearer list right there. <laughs> Steve's my best friend. He used to tell me stuff. Now he's got my wife, who's very vulnerable, in the car and going to a meeting. I know what they do at those damn Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And then afterwards say, oh, we went for coffee. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> Because i got a lot of trust. My trust level is really high, you know, after 13 years of active drinking. So she starts telling me to go to Al-Anon. I ain't going to Al-Anon. sit with a bunch of old ladies laying white eggs and brown eggs and cackling away. I don't need that crap. Nothing wrong with me. You start being a housewife, everything would be okay. And an alcoholic lady told her, she said, you don't say nothing to him about Al-Anon. Don't even talk to him about it. Don't mention it. Well, you know how alcoholics are. If, if one nails good seven nails will hold the board better you know if, if one aspirin's good takes five or six you know don't talk to him about it so then she that's good but then she'd go oh man i was sitting in the front room at the club tonight just before the meeting you should see who went upstairs to the alanon meeting i'd say who she says i can't tell you that it's anonymous <laughs> so one night we're sitting we're sitting at the picnic table here, you know, and uh, knee to knee sitting outside the picnic table. It's probably uh, around April, late April, I suppose. And she looks at me. She was going to be going into treatment in June. She looks at me and she says, Chuck, I'm going into treatment in a few weeks, and when I get out, we might not be together. <laughs> here comes that heat. Here comes it right off the top of my head. Thirteen years of active alcoholism, got six weeks of sobriety, and she's telling me we may not be together. What's she talking about? Boy, oh boy, I, I couldn't live with her. I couldn't live without her. I didn't want her leaving me, especially when she's sober. You know, this is just the start of something. And all of a sudden, she's talking about not being there anymore. And she brought up this halfway house thing. I didn't even know what that was, but I was scared to death about it. I, don't, I didn't know what they were going to, what half they were going to keep or nothing. And it's just, you know, you don't know. You've got to have the whole woman. And, and so, anyway, she's talking this kind of crap. And then I had this brilliant idea. I think I'll go to Elanine. So I said to her, Sam, uh, um, I'd, I'd, uh, I think I'm going to go to the Al-Anon meeting tonight. Okay, Chuck, it's at 8 o'clock. We'll go to the club and you'll go to the Al-Anon, or Al-Anon meeting. So she had me by the hand when we walked into the club. She walked up, we walked up the steps. It's a beautiful old building, got uh, oak, solid oak uh, pillars and doors, big sliding doors that slide out. It's a 100-year-old house. She got me by the hand like I'm going to kindergarten. Says, I'm going in there to a meeting with Alcoholics Anonymous, Chuck, and the Elanon room is the third door on the left up those stairs. So I walked up those stairs, and the damn smoke was there. It's, it's like a bar without booze, you know, it's just, ugh. So I'm walking down this hallway, and, and there's a sign on this door, and it's an old yellow sign, it says Elanon. And at that time, the meetings were on the second floor. This is what was coming from behind that door. They were going, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go to Elanon. I didn't want to lose my wife, but I didn't want to go to Elanon. And I certainly doesn't think about no recovery crap. That's for sure. So anyway, I got a lot of pride, no self-esteem. I got to get in there. So I'm going to open that door and slide right around. I've never been in that room, but I knew what it was in that room. You, know, you, you ever been like that? Or you, you know. I knew what that room looked like. So I was going to slide around and, and just kind of sneak in where nobody could see me, which is a weird thought. Anyway, uh, <laughs> given my size and everything, you know. So I pushed on the door, and that damn door stuck. 
It was stuck at the top, moose at the bottom, it was going, whoa, whoa, whoa. So, I, and honest to God, this happened. I pushed that door, and I fell right in the middle of that room, and these women go, oh, it's another man, it's another man, come on in, come on in. My fear was what the hell they do with the other man, you know. But there was another little guy there. Another little guy fit right about here. Boy, he looked, he looked like Hercules, you know. And I saw him, and I walked over and sat down next to him. And uh, now I make fun of alcoholics, and it, it bothers me terribly. I make fun of, I make fun of Al-Anon women, Al-Anon people, women mostly. But you guys saved our lives. Alcoholics Anonymous people saved our sanity and saved our, our. You didn't purposely save our marriage. But in a roundabout way, and, and for many years, we, you saved our sanity in our marriage by helping us make uh, healthy decisions, healthy choices, responsibility. That became part of our life. And, and Al-Anon women taught me that. Alcoholics Anonymous taught Sandy that. And I'll be forever grateful for you for that. What's my responsibility? Do I have a responsibility? Well, some people will say, no, you don't have any responsibility. I say I have a lot of responsibility. I have to carry what's been given to me to other people. And I do that through sponsorship. I do that through, through something that I call manager. It's an acronym, manager. God's got to be my manager because I'm a terrible manager. I'm a good assistant manager. And I'll get into that a little bit later. But manager for me means meetings. I have to go to meetings. But what happens at the meetings? You see newcomers. You see older people that are hurting. I've been in both situations. I've been a newcomer, and I've been in meetings where I've been hurting. You have to have greetings. For me, if I see Fred or Dick sitting there, and after the meeting, I don't have to go up and ask them how the outboard motor's running. If there's a newcomer in that meeting, I have to go talk to that newcomer. I have to at least give them my phone number and make them feel welcome because that's what that little guy did for me, that first meeting of mine. He, he made me feel welcome. And... The readings, of course, we have to read. If I wouldn't have read Al-Anon Faces Alcoholism about that guy and his, wife, and his alcoholic wife, I don't know whether I would be here today telling you about what I did with my drunken, passed-out wife. I don't know if I'd be able to share that with other uh, uh, guys that I sponsor when they're in similar situations and they're in pain and they're feeling guilty about things. I don't know whether I would have been able to make amends for that situation to my darling wife. I just don't know that if I wouldn't have been doing that reading. This little guy was there at my first meeting. And you Al-Anon women were the rest of the crowd, about 20 of you, in various states of pregnancy and whatever. <laughs> there was one lady there. She was 19 months pregnant, I swear. <laughs> Her skin was so thin you could see the baby and they're just walking around. Anyway, I don't know why I said that. Anyway, uh, um, you, you, you guys shared stuff and I just... It was just inside me. It was like you were picking out stuff that was going on inside of me and you were sharing it. And I thought, next week I'm coming back. That little guy said he was going to take the meeting the next week. I didn't know where he was taking it, but I was going to be there. And, and, and that's what I did. I went back. He was at three meetings and he was gone. I've never seen the little guy since. He was working for the census in Wisconsin in 1980. And, and uh, he was there for those meetings. And then he went to a different part of the state. And I always say I'd, I'd love to give that little guy a hug. If, if I'm ever telling my story, God, he's got to be 90 years old by now, but if I ever tell my story and that guy comes up and says, I'm that little guy, man, I would just love to give him a hug. 
Sandy was telling her story one time after I had told mine. She says, I'm going to give some little guy 20 bucks to come up and give him a hug. So I shut up about that story. <laughs> so I'm going to Al-Anon and I, I, uh, Sandy went into treatment and, and you people taught me things about responsibility. What's my responsibility as far as the alcoholic goes, sobriety or lack of sobriety? You, you talked about the cure, I can't cure it, I, can't cause, I didn't cause it, I can't cure it, I can't control it. You talked about that stuff with me. And, and, and I took all that stuff in. I, I, I got a sponsor. I started work with, with him, and he left the program. And I had him up on, on a pedestal, and, and he just disappeared. And I, I was without a sponsor for a while. Sandy goes into treatment. And she gets out of treatment, and we're sitting at home. Uh, this is in, in May, May the 18th, 1980. And maybe some of you know what happened on May the 18th, 1980. It's, a, it's a, something that took place that the whole world knew about except me, because my wife, just, we're sitting outside at that picnic table. My neighbor Marge comes over. Marge is uh, about 70 years old or so. She comes over. She's got uh, two glasses of wine, balloon wine. Now, I don't know if you know what balloon wine is. It's, you put it in a gallon jug. You put the stuff in a jug, put a balloon on top of it. You set it on top of the refrigerator, and it starts working. And when it comes back down again, the wine's done. She comes over and says, Chuck and Sandy, will you try my wine? Marge knew everything that went on in that neighborhood. She's our next-door neighbor. One night I was chasing Sandy around. She wouldn't come in the house. You ever have an alcoholic that won't come in the house? Damn, they're just like dogs that get off the leash, you know. They just won't. They just don't listen. You whistle at them, they just laugh at you. So I'm, I'm chasing her around the neighborhood. Damn it, she's coming in this house, and that's all there is to it. Except I only have my underwear on. That was it. No socks, no, no nothing. Just my, my BVDs. And... and Sometimes in, in, in the summertime when Sandy was really warm and hot, I'm not telling her story because she'll share this if you ever hear her story. She'd go up and we had a, a trees, and I don't know any other name for them but piss elm trees. That's what they were called. So we had this great big huge piss elm tree in the yard, and she would climb up in that tree with her 12-pack or 6-pack old Milwaukee because that's what she drank. And then the kids couldn't get up to come after her. So she'd sit up in that tree, and she'd start getting warm and start taking her clothes off. The next thing you know, it's like Lady Godiva in a tree. And, and, and Marge comes over with these two glasses of wine and says to us, would you like to have some wine? And we were afraid to tell Marge we didn't drink. <laughs> she saw us in our underwear and less, and we're embarrassed to say we don't drink. Well, we were embarrassed to say we And my, my heart is pounding. That heat's going through the top of my head again. Sandy took her glass and drank it. I took my glass and drank it. And inside, I'm just screaming, we got six weeks of sobriety. We got six weeks of sobriety. Went in the house, Sandy says, Chuck, I want to get drunk. She says, would you go get me a 12-pack? And I said, Sandy, which I think is interesting, that she wanted me to go get her a 12-pack. I said, Sandy, you better call your sponsor, because I can't help you. I'm not responsible for your sobriety. I learned that in Al-Anon. As you're responsible for your own sobriety, and if you want to keep it, you've got to call your sponsor. And I started bawling, and she started bawling, and we, we embraced, and we hugged, and, and uh, she said, my love, I've hurt you. And I said, no, I, I just, I, I, I can't control your life. I can't control your life. And I learned that. In just that short time I'd been in Al-Anon, I learned that. And Sandy called her sponsor, and her sponsor's name was Diane. We knew Diane from the bars. Diane had about a year more sobriety than Sandy did. Diane was a woman, she was a large-boned woman from southern Alberta. You know that song Katie Lang sings? Well, she was, that was Diane. Her idea of detachment was to rip a guy's arm off and beat him over the head with it, you know. <laughs> and that was her sponsor. So Diane comes over to the house and grabs Sandy, and they go wherever sponsors and pigeons go. I have no idea. They were gone for a long time. And that was May the 18th, 1980, the day Mount St. Helens blew up. 
and that was uh, Sandy's last drink. And, and she's been sober ever since, and a, and a productive member of Alcoholics Anonymous. She's been a GSR. She's been uh, all the rest of those initials that these guys have, and 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 uh, very active in corrections. She loved it. And I started, and I'm in Al-Anon, and I'm doing my Al-Anon stuff. I got a, I got a sponsor. It was another guy that came to the meeting, and it was just Frank and I in that meeting. So we co-sponsored one another, and that worked out really well. I don't I don't uh, I don't say that's what you should do. But for us two guys, it worked out well. We were able to we were able to co-sponsor one another. I was a delegate from Minnesota North, panel 32, and uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, I'm really I'm working the program, you know. I'm, I'm Mr. Alanon. Sandy's Mrs. Alcoholics Anonymous. We got this perfect marriage going for us, and I started. I became enamored with another person, and I became I had an emotional affair with with a person. And Sandy came to me one day and she said, Chuck, I know what's going on. And I said, nothing going on. See, I took, my, I, took my, I took my higher power down from being my higher power. I started running the show. I started being the manager. And when I did that, I, I just devastated my Al-Anon program. You couldn't have told me that because I saw it as being just fine. But Sandy said, you, you have a, a, a necklace with two precious gems on it. She said, there's only room for one. You make the choice. It's going to be our relationship or other relationships. I will not share my relationship with you with anybody else. You make a choice. And I was on the street corner Sunday night, the rain coming down in Superior, Wisconsin, on the phone talking to my sponsor. If that sounds alcoholic, well, I was obsessed. And I caught my sponsor, and we started talking. I did a fourth step on that, a fifth step. I went right down the line with that situation. I did some counseling. I was doing my four-step in, in my truck. I had a yellow, a yellow legal pad, and I'm writing stuff down on there about my situation. And I was going to put it down because things were getting better. This, some time had passed. I had made my decision. That, we know that. Make a decision. I had made my decision. I had started my four-step. I was doing this stuff, and things were getting better. Sandy and I were, were acting um, more friendly towards one another, and things were kind of going good in the house, and I thought... What do I got to do this for? Things are better. There was a guy at an Elanon meeting some months before that. His name was Ed. And Ed had slick back hair and he wore a black leather jacket. And he was rich. I mean, this guy just smelled of money. And, and, and he was very suave and debonair. And, and, and he talked in a very deep voice. <laughs> and when it came his time to share, he said, Well, all I can say is, if nothing changes, nothing changes, I pass. I thought... Crapes, I could say that in 10 minutes, you know. That, here he takes 30 seconds to say that. Said, what does that mean? That's crazy. I'm sitting in my truck with my legal pad, getting ready to put the pen down, getting ready to put that pad down, and Ed's voice came into my head and said, if nothing changes, nothing changes. Nothing had changed. I, was, I had made a decision, but I had not carried through on it. And I finished that fourth step in that situation, and I went on and did my fifth step with my sponsor, with Frank, Frank left the program. I took that fourth step, and I did another fifth step with the sponsor that I, that I got afterwards. And little Dave. Little Dave's a Frenchman. Fits right here. I just got an email from him the other day. I, he, I just love him. He's got a little mustache. That, he's got about 80 hairs on his mustache, and they all stick straight out like this. And, <laughs> and he wears a little bray, and he, he looks like David Niven on a drunk or something. And he's a nice guy. Anyway, I finished that. I did what I had to do, and I made my decision. And I'm so glad I made the decision I made. Because Sandy and I have a marvelous relationship today. She calls me my love. See, I never thought, and this again, 
You kids probably think that I'm corny when I keep talking about love, but, you know, uh, I wasn't always 60 years old, and besides that, 60 years old don't make a difference anyway. Wait till you're 60 years old. Um, <laughs> see, I never thought Sandy found me sexually attractive unless she was drinking. So I was stuck in the place where I wanted her drinking, where she found me attractive, but not too drunk. So I, I wanted her there, and that was almost an impossibility. And all of a sudden, that's not even a possibility anymore because there's no booze. There's no beer. She's sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm sober in Al-Anon. And we're trying, to, we're trying to be intimate, have an intimate relationship, including romance, sober. What a boom. Just It hits you, you know. And thank goodness for the patience and love of this fellowship. You, you people taught us patience, love, and understanding. Today we have this relationship that's just so, it's, it's marvelous. I, I spoke out in Colorado a, few, uh, a couple of years ago, and we were walking across this footbridge that went over the road, and we're out at uh, Crested Butte, Colorado, 9,000 foot elevation, you know, and we're just, we're, we're walking under the stars of Colorado. And my, my wife turns to me and says, my love, I love to make love to you. That would not have been possible without Alcoholics Anonymous. That would not have been possible without Al-Anon. If, if there's anybody in here new in the program, and I know there is, it takes patience and time. And God bless you people for giving that to us. I will always be grateful for that. Loved her and hated her. Loved her and hated her. My son Kurt, he's, he, he comes home from sleeping overnight in the, kid, in the neighbor's tent. The neighbor's dad calls me up and says, uh, Chuck, I hate to tell you this, but Kurt got drunk in the tent, puked all over the tent. Well, this is time to have a father talk with Kurt now. He's 13 years old, and he's uh, imbibing a little bit, probably experimenting, and uh, we'll settle this. So I went and had a talk with him. And I come back, told Sandy, in my Eleanor fashion, of course. He'll never do that again. <laughs> Sandy looked at me with those AA eyeballs and said, She's, he's going to do it again and again and again. And Kurt did. He went full force. Kurt, Kurt was born at 130 miles an hour. And he did everything at 130 miles an hour, and he still does. He's 31 years old. He, he got into drugs and alcohol, and he just, he, was, he exploded. It was like gasoline, putting a match to gasoline. He rubbed and shoved and poked and stabbed and drank and injected everything he could get his hands on. He started getting tattoos all over his body, and he just went wild. We had him in an adolescent treatment center for a while, and he got out. He comes home his 18th birthday, February 27th. He comes home, 18 years old. We were at the door with a pillow and a sleeping bag. And when he came through that door, we said, Kurt, it's your birthday, you're 18 years old. And he had a friend with him. And we said, you can't live in our home anymore when you're using drugs or alcohol. He said, you're throwing me out. And I said, no, we love you, but we hate your behavior. We love you, but we hate your behavior. Love and hate. All those years I loved and hated my wife. I loved my wife, and I hated the behavior. And you people taught me that, and I was able to use it with a son that I loved. He was our love baby. We talked about having him. We made plans for him. We did it all for Kurt. And he's a raging, out-of-control, drug-addicted alcoholic. And we said, you can't live in our house anymore. When you get done with your drugs, when you quit your drugs, when you're clean, you can come live here. Kurt went. He says, where am I going to go, Dad? Do I have to sleep under the viaduct? Maybe you do, Kurt, but you're not sleeping in this house while you're using drugs. And he said, okay, goodbye. I said, Kurt, I love you. 
And my son turned to me and said, Dad, I love you too. Goodbye. And he walked out the door and I walked that double deadbolt lock that we had changed that day. We did not lock our bedroom door with our deadbolt lock, which we had on our bedroom door because we felt unsafe. We were living in unacceptable conditions from an unacceptable behavior from an out-of-control alcoholic drug user. And we asked him to leave our house. We'd see that kid walking down the street. Kurt's a beautiful kid. He was a beautiful baby. He's a beautiful man right now. Long, blonde hair. He lives out in California now. He's got that California tan. He's got those blue eyes. And he's just a, he's, he's a great-looking guy. He's walking down the streets of Superior, Wisconsin, and we'd be driving down the main street of Tower Avenue. We'd look over and see Kurt, and I'd have to look the other way. And the tears would come down our eyes as we looked at that boy with his matted hair and his dirty face and his glasses askew and his holes in his pants, living on the streets. He lived under, he lived under a person's porch for a while. One of his druggy friends let him use the, the, the closet. He lived in their closet for a while. One day we got a phone call, and we had expected to get phone calls. Get a phone call. It's Kurt. We thought, and he, we expected phone calls of him dying. He expected to die. He called and he says, Dad, I'm really sick and I want to come home. I said, you can come home if you get off drugs and alcohol. He said, Dad, I'm sick. I don't want to take drugs anymore. I don't know what to do. I need to go to the doctor. Can I go to the doctor? Yeah, Kurt, you can go to the doctor. You can come home if you're clean and sober. Kurt moved back into the house. He went to the doctor. The doctor told him, son, if you use drugs or alcohol anymore, you're going to die because you have hepatitis C. Kurt got hepatitis C from sharing a needle. <clears throat> he lived home. Kurt quit high school in the senior year because he didn't want to take gym. Now, there's an alcoholic reasoning for you. <laughs> Why graduate? I don't want to take gym. I'm not going to do it. You can't force me to do it. So he quits. He went back to school. He got his high school equivalency diploma. A few months later, here comes uh, literature from University of Wisconsin-Superior. Kurt, you going to college? Yeah, I'm going to go to UWS if they'll have me. He went to UWS, graduated five years later, summa cum laude, a 3.89 grade average. He goes off to Vermont. He does a residency out in Vermont. He's out there in the summer, during the summer. He comes back home. Here comes more information from colleges. What are you going to do? I'm going for my master's. Your master's? Yeah, I want to get my master's on and I've chosen the college, Claremont College, Graduate College, uh, Claremont, California. Clerk goes out to Claremont, California. Never been out there. Just takes the airplane, goes. Gets to Claremont, California, starts going to college, graduated. We went out there in May. He graduated with honors uh, with a Master of Arts degree. Master's degree in, in uh, uh, visual arts. In July of that year, July 4th weekend, Sandy and I went to talk at the uh, South Bay Roundup. There was 5,000 people sitting in that audience. And those people invited Kurt to come with and sit with us. I got up and told my story right up to this point where I'm talking right now. He sat in that room full of what he called druggies, uh, alkies, uh, lushes, soaks, that he, he didn't want anything to do with you people. He sat in that room listening to me tell my story and he had tears come down in his eyes. When I got done with my story, those people stood up and applauded, and they came and gave me hugs, and they went over and hugged that young man. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous, Kurt. We love you. Keep coming back. And he looked at them, just looked at them. They just kept telling him that. We love you. We love you. Keep coming back. We're so glad to see you. 
How are you doing? How's college? You're talking to them. You're talking, making conversations with them. I, I was just astounded by it. You, you people talk about crabby old sponsors. And, you know, I, I hear you guys talk about rah, rah, sponsors. Tells me that I'm 90 meetings, 90 days, and there, there was no questions. I just told me to do this stuff. I had no choice. They told me to do this stuff. You people of Alcoholics Anonymous, you people of Eleanor, loved that kid into the fellowship. You loved him into Alcoholics Anonymous. He couldn't get away from you. <laughs> Sandy's talking to Kurt about a year and a half ago. He's talking to Kurt on the phone. And I'm sitting there just kind of listening halfway, and all of a sudden I hear her talking about page 449. I hear her talking about the first 164 pages of the big book. I hear her talking about the promises. And I'm going, what's she talking to Kurt about that stuff for? And then I got goosebumps like I got right now. Kurt's of A&E. She got off the phone and she says, Chuck, Kurt's going Alcoholics Anonymous. And we just embraced. Thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you, Eleanor, for showing that kid that all he's got to do is go to a meeting. That's all he has to do. His best friend is a double winner. And she said to Kurt, she says, quit your crying and get off your dead ass and go to an AA meeting. He says, by gosh, I think I will. And he did. <laughs> I'm talking to him on the phone. He says, Dad, I can't talk long. I've got to go to a big book study group. You people invited, uh, Eleanor people invited me out to... Uh, Catalina Island for five days. We had an Al-Anon thing on Catalina Island, and I spoke out there. And the lady that invited me said, invite your son with. So we invited him along. And he got up to the podium like this, and he said, Hi, my name is Kurt Lemieux, and I'm an alcoholic. And I just wanted to ball. I didn't, but I wanted to. Thank you. That's why I think God leads us to Alcoholics Anonymous. God leads us to Al-Anon. And Elanon helps us find the God of our understanding because that young man was an atheist to the nth degree. And today he talks about his higher power. Thank you so much. Because my son was saved. My son's a beautiful young man. With a, he's going to be teaching art in the L.A. school district come fall. That young kid that walked down the street with his tor pants torn open and full of drugs is a productive member of Alcoholics Anonymous and a productive member of the community of Los Angeles, California. We went out there, I spoke at the Orange County Convention, and we stayed with him for a week. And it was a joy. We talked about stuff. My son, who uttered and grunted and peed and moaned, that came home from my father-in-law's funeral, and I could only leave him home three hours, and I had to ask him to leave. I spent a week with that young man, and I loved every minute of it. Thank you so very much. I'm going to tell you a story about corn, and I'm going to sit down. I've gone over my 50-minute limit, but who cares? They're going to pull me off of here with a hook or something. <laughs> Why do you still go to Al-Anon? You've been going 23 years. Why are you still going? That's the question I get asked. Well, I'll tell you what. One day I come home from work. Sandy's got, I walk through the door, and I worked in a freezer for many years. And I, it's summertime. I come home, and I'm, I'm, I've been in that freezer for 10 hours. i got snot icicles hanging down past my chin. <laughs> I get cleaned up, I come home, my legs are on fire, my feet are cold, my face is beat red. I walk through the door, Sandy goes, oh, my love, you're home, my love. Wow. She says, you go sit out in the front porch at the table. We had a little table set up out there, just a round one, not much bigger than this thing. She's got a chair here and a chair here, so we're sitting close so those knees can touch once again, you know. And the sparks still fly. She says, I'll bring you in your supper. She comes in and she's got mashed potatoes, corn on the cob, and meatloaf. 
She's got glasses of milk with the water streaming down the sides, and she sets it all down on the table, and we sit down to eat. And I looked at her and says, man, I love you. She says, Chuck, I love you too. So we start eating, and I start buttering my corn, and she starts buttering her corn. And one of us says to the other one, you know, that's not really the way to butter corn. So the other one says, well, you know, I never used to butter my corn this way until you told me to butter it this way. Another one says, I would never have told you to butter corn that way. That's, that's crazy to butter corn like that. Because one of us was taking a pad of butter and slapping it around, turning the corn cob. The other one was taking the cob of corn, putting it on the quarter of butter and turning it as so that it would get seeped in butter. So we're talking about this. And I said, you told me. I, told, I wouldn't have told you. And I realized I had corn kernels coming out of my mouth and they were bouncing in her food and they were bouncing off the end of this little round table and the dog was sitting on the other side and he was slopping up the corn dog. So you people in Al-Anon taught me something. You taught me to detach, right? Taught me to detach with love. And that's what I did. I took that corn of cob, and a cob of corn and I said, the hell with you. And I threw that cob of corn down in the middle of my mashed potatoes. It was just like a rocket going into the moon sticking out there and I got up and I says, I'm leaving. And I don't remember if she said anything or not. And I didn't even care because I was detaching. And I walked, I walked out that back door and I walked down. We live right on, we live on Lake Superior, the western tip of Lake Superior. And, and we live on the bay on Lake Superior. It's about a three block walk down to the bay. So I'm walking down there and I get down to the bay and there's a blue heron in the bay. And that blue heron's got his neck in an S shape. You know how they do that. And he's just standing there watching, and I'm watching him, and he's watching the fish. And boom, he comes out, and he's got that fish. And boom, 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 down it goes, you know. And I thought, you lucky bucker, you got your supper, I don't have mine. <laughs> and then I thought, well, actually, he doesn't have anybody, another here on standing next to him going, head first, I'll just swallow the fish, head first. <laughs> And I did what you people did. I laughed about it. I said, for God's sake, it's corn on the cob. <laughs> we had an argument about corn on the cob. And you know what Elanon does? Elanon doesn't just drop these white sheets down in front of your face when you're trying to work the program. All of a sudden, I'm thinking, I've got to make amends to my wife for arguing about corn on the cob. That's silly. I'm going to go home and make amends. And I know she's going to make amends to me, too, because she's practicing her program, Alcoholics Anonymous. Amends are amends, you know. So I know it's going to, I'm going to go home. Everything's going to be fine. So I walked down the, uh, to the river where I used to fantasize you driving the car in the river. And there's a kid there with a dog and a stick. And he's throwing a stick in and the lab's bringing the stick back to him in the river. And I thought, wow, this is great. And I'm thinking, it's time for me to turn around and go home. Because, I, you know, this is silly. I mean, we argue about stuff and, and this is really silly. So I turned to leave. And as I did that, I heard the fire truck and the ambulance and the cop car go by. And they were going east on Highway 2, just a couple of blocks from the, the river bridge. And just for an instant... What went through my mind was, I hope to hell she thinks I jumped in that water or the river and they're coming to pull me out. And then, and then I laughed about that because I realized at that moment that like a box of cornflakes or, or, or a, a new car, the, my serenity is subject to change without notice. <laughs> now you think you got it, but do you have it? So I laughed about that and I thought, oh, I'm going home. So I, I turned around and walked home. It's five minutes, whatever, to get to the house. Walk in the back door. I said, Sam, I, I want to make amends for that, my part in that argument. I said, it was corn on the cob for Pete's sake. She says, yeah, Chuck. 
Uh, me too. It was silly for us to argue about corn on the cob. So, you know, we made our amends. And she goes, uh, would you like your supper? Yeah, hon, I'd like my supper. She said, sit in the fridge. You know, if it was no more my love, I'll get you and set you. It was, it's in the fridge. So I went over and I got it out of the fridge. And this thing, I took this plate out of the refrigerator, and it looked like the Crystal Cathedral. It was, she had left that corn right in the middle of the mashed potatoes. I should put saran wrap over it and wrapped it around the bottom. I said it looked like a phallic symbol coming out of there, you know? So I stuck it in the microwave. I nuked it for a couple minutes, and there I am sitting eating my, my, my dinner by myself. But, you know, what, what's so, what's to me is so great is that Elanon stood by us through crisis, stood by me when I was on the verge of destroying my marriage, stood by us when we, when we, when we, my father-in-law got struck and killed by a car. You, you Elanon people came, our sponsors came to be with us. You're also with me when I argue about corn on the cob. Elanon helps me through the little situations, the, the, the molehills. It helps me through the mountains. It just kind of levels things out for me. And that's what it can do for you. And I, I, I'm standing up here right now. I'm, I'm just so grateful to be in Kansas. Uh, be, I don't mean Olithia or whatever the name of this place <laughs> is. I want to say Kansas City, but I know I'm south of Kansas City. But thank you for inviting me to be here today. I love every one of you. Thanks.